0: 25, uh, The bigger context, can't ever lose sight of the fact that the book of Matthew is about the kingdom. Uh, this isn't a departure, this isn't a tangent off from what Christ is accomplishing in establishing his kingdom by saving his people. Uh, it's to be understood as his instruction in some particular things in the kingdom. We've talked about the different discourses. Uh, The book being organized around the five discourses, this being uh, the last of them. Jesus is is coming to the time when he will be going to the cross, and he is teaching his disciples, and he's teaching them particularly uh, in this last week uh, approaching the Passover. They're in Jerusalem, and, and he has told them at the beginning of chapter 24, look at the buildings of the temple. It's all coming down. Not one stone upon another. Um, uh, You can go to the wailing wall and there are stones on top. It's not much. But, you you know, one of those things, he's speaking um, of a literal truth, you know, very literally uh, talking about the completeness of the destruction but are we compelled to believe not a single stone well that, that's that's kind of beyond the scope of normal expression but but they're looking at the at the destruction of the temple and they come to him privately after he has announced that and the three questions are when will these things be when will this happen and what will be the sign of your sign of your coming and the ed, end of the age you can think of that as two different or the same cre- question. So Christ, this, this whole discourse is answering um, and going beyond answering uh, these, these two or three questions. Um, I've told you um, d- just a kind of quick review of terminology. I, kinda, I took down the, the timelines. I'm just assuming some familiarity with those. We had uh, different views. There's dispensationalism, which has a distinction uh, in its eschatological theology between Christ coming and taking his people out of the world. Then history continues for a time and there's different uh, within dispensationalism there's pre-tribulational, mid-tribulation or post-tribulational raptures uh, depending on how you uh, understand different passages of scripture but there is the coming of Christ to take his church out, and then there's a period of history, and then comes the end when, when Christ finally, ultimately returns. So there's this distinction between the, the caught-up um, church, which uh, that, that the phrase rapture comes from that phrase, which is in 1 Thessalonians 4, and, uh, um, and it's, um, that's the, the scheme for dispensationalists. Uh, which is a, you know, a f- historically recent um, uh, system of, of teaching, you know, mid to late 1800s, um, became, has become very popular. Historic premillennialism agrees that uh, Christ will come, and after he returns uh, for his saints to judge the earth, there will be a, a millennial kingdom established on the earth. Um, a literal 1,000 years. Amillennialism understands the, the 1,000 years to not necessarily be a literal 1,000 years. It's, it's uh, significant. And I'm using that the, the word significant you know, in the literal sense of it, is, it signifies. Um, it, it signifies, if you will, a, a complete epoch of history in which Christ's kingdom reigns and typically, all millennialists say this is, this is being fulfilled in the church. Uh, we're not talking about Christ reigning over all of the aspects of visible earthly history. We're talking about him reigning in the, uh, the visible, but not yet completely visible, kingdom of his people, uh, the church on earth. Um, post-millennialism says, basically, Christ will come again, uh, but only after, again... A thousand-year period, which is less, which is something other than uh, exactly, literally 1,000 years. Um, But there's going to be this period where the the reign of Christ isn't just in the hearts of his people in the church, but it's really over all of human history and history is going to get better and better and the world's going to look like a better and better place. Um, And then the Lord will return, sort of as the consummation of all things. Uh, That fell into very much uh, Unpopularity in the 20th century after the World Wars. It's like, who can believe history's progressing? Now, there's been something of a resurgence of it of late in a sort of a modified form which in which amillennialism and postmillennialism kind of overlap. Um, and you can digest that and make of it what you want. There's, you'll hear the term, you'll hear, hear me use the term occasionally, preterism. That's the belief that there isn't. A separate end of the world coming of Jesus Christ because it was all fulfilled in the judgment on Jerusalem in seventy a d uh, that's mostly been rejected as orthodoxy in the history of the church the idea that uh, the second coming has occurred, and we are living in an indefinite period after that um, there's There's some Christians who have you know they're orthodox in their view of scripture and their view of the atonement but they're not really considered within the pale of orthodoxy in the in the history of the church in in terms of the second coming so uh the reason i put it up there is just because i think i don't disagree to the extent that i think oh their AD70 was insignificant i really do think that Matthew 24 and 25 significantly are talking about the judgment with which fell on the on the Jewish rejection of their Messiah, and the end of temple sacrifices, the end of the temple, and a uh, end of the age of what we refer to as the the old covenant, the Old Testament, uh, in AD seventy. Um, so, on some of those points, I think you know a lot of people. In any of these camps might share some common ground with Preterists there, but they would other, be completely other than this rejection of Christ returning at the end of, of Earth's history. So um, I've talked about a hermeneutic of literalism. Uh, talk a li- uh, you know we can if there's questions, we can revisit it. We talked a little bit about it last week. I don't think it works as a hermeneutic. Um, I am m- more of a, I've uh, got the word up here, forgot to cross the X. I am a, more of a contextualist, the, the, the principle. is a more difficult, it, it's a, there's more to it. Uh, and a lot, uh, you know, usually broader discussions about what, uh, what any given passage might mean if you're trying to build and understand the, the context of the whole of Scripture and put any given passage, sc- passage of Scripture in the context of everything else. It's a, it's a, it's a bigger task. Um, but there has been a hermeneutic of literalism tied uh, largely to dispensationalism where it, it's sort of a rule of interpretation, that if, if a thing is said, you must trust that it is, it is expressed literally unless there is a compelling reason not to take it so. And uh, there's the, the difficulty I mostly see with that is what's a compelling reason? That kind of casts it back onto... You know what what do we decide? You know we still end up deciding contextually what is literal and what is not um, but someone who says that they don't use literalism as a hermeneutic uh, to approach scripture with you don't want to understand that that means they don't think scripture is literally true. you know I absolutely am a literalist in the sense of these are literally expressed true or, i'm sorry literally true things that the Bible is expressing, uh, that the point of departure between dispensationalism and a lot of the other historic approaches of Scripture is making it a principle of interpretation, which has to be your default position all the time, that, oh, this is literal. And that has um, ramifications for how you understand Israel's history um, and how their history continues or does not continue into the into the present age. So there's, you know, there's some significant differences. All of these, though, would fall... Up, oh, not that one. Erase that. Would fall into the into the category of historic orthodoxy. Um, personally, I think it's worth um, just a, a real simple exercise uh, and, and there's a lot I, you know, I'm obviously saying a lot, but there's a lot I won't say. I used to used to consider myself something of a not completely convinced amillennialist. I'm not. I'm not so sure. I, I really don't categorize, categorize myself uh, very staunchly anymore. And and this this is just a a, a simple exercise, sort of illu- to illustrate my reasoning. If I, we're all familiar with Isaiah chapter fifty-three. Open Isaiah chapter 53, three, we read about the suffering servant. There's some really plain things there said about this servant. Who can, you can, it, it's clear that God's talking about his chosen one, and he's talking about him suffering for his people. But I, have to, I ask myself, could I have read, prior to having the New Testament, prior to knowing what actually happened, could I have read Isaiah chapter 53 and have known, oh, got it, I will recognize the Messiah when he comes, no question, I absolutely get it. It is so clear that I will know this man named Jesus. I will know that he is the Messiah. I will know that his cross is the the scourging and the the substitutionary suffering that Isaiah 53 talks about. And i got to be honest with myself, if I read Isaiah 53 with the hindsight that I have the benefit of having because I'm looking back through the revelation that the New Testament has given me. It's pretty clear. But if I didn't have that, it doesn't say anything about crucifixion. It doesn't say anything about what this guy's name's going to be. It it doesn't say that he's going to be the earthly son of a carpenter. It doesn't say that he's going to be well, yes, of the royal line, but really, kind of peasantry, um, you know, very much the the lower working class. Not one of the rulers of Israel, um, because the you know the whole line. I just think if you and, and I could I could multiply that example by by almost every um, Old Testament prophecy, which is given about the coming of Christ. I'm just not sure that having it at the time would have given me the complete picture so that I could have drawn all the right conclusions just from the prophecies if I had not had the the benefit of hindsight from God's revelation. And I feel a lot that way about eschatology. I there's a, there's some things I'm pretty sure of and some things I'm fairly but not completely convinced of. And then there's and then there's this attitude in the back of my mind that well I have everything God wants me to have in his New Testament revelation that doesn't mean I have everything that I need to understand completely to my satisfaction exactly how things are going to take shape. So I just kind of have a open to be instructed as God's providence unfolds kind of a mentality about eschatology. So um, (laughs) <laughs> we'll see. He couldn't resist. I have nothing against the rapture. I just think it's all going to be one event. Yeah, when the rapture comes, I'll be convinced, but it's going to be the same thing with the second coming. I am persuaded. Uh, I don't, yeah, I don't see that as two different, different events. So, um, go ahead, Tim? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I guess, I mean, on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I don't know, but, you know, to your point, I, I don't know if I would ever be able to understand Christ through the Old Testament. Right. Uh, but Philip did, and in, in Ethiopian was reading Isaiah 53. Right. So, sure. Yeah, but he didn't understand it until so, until Philip... Philip uh, yeah, but yeah, but Philip saw it, Philip saw it happen. Uh so it's I mean it, it's just yeah, it's 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 just interesting. I'm just using that as an example. I'm not I'm not saying I I am a firm believer in what I refer to as the perspicuity of scripture. It's clear. But I think you got to take that principle in the in the sense that it is clear enough for us to learn what God wants us to learn, not clear enough for us to know everything we want to know. Um, but yeah, yeah, you know, Philip. Oh, you want to know what this means? Let me tell you about Jesus. The light went on. So yeah, per, it, it's it's clear, it's adequate. It tells us what happened. But what happened with the Ethiopian eunuch is he got the benefit of hindsight that I'm talking. Oh, now I see it, with, which he he wasn't getting it until he had that. So anyway. Um, just uh, some again again without going into detail quick summary um, comments on Matthew 24 just to lead into Matthew 25 um, because Jesus is answering it's, uh, in the context particularly of when will these things be what things are they asking with that first question oh when are all the stones of the temple going to be knocked down when's that going to happen And Jesus starts talking about uh, the signs of the time. And and I think it's very clear um, that in some significant way, Jesus is talking about what the Romans are going to do with the temple in Jerusalem in ending that time of the sacrifice, ending the place of the sacrifice. Um, And I think it's very clearly spoken of as, as Christ's, judgment falling, um, and then you start getting into this big discussion, which I'm just going to editorially decide not to get into the details of this, how does that correspond to, in some sense, a visitation of God, of Christ, in judgment on the Jewish nation? I'll just leave that for you to cogitate upon yourself, but... Um, As you go through Matthew 24, the different positions have different ideas of how significant and which passages are talking specifically, or in the case of the preterist, this is all about Matthew 24, and it's not about anything else. Um, I'm sorry, this is all about the destruction of the temple, and it's not about anything else. Um, I've already told you, I don't, I don't subscribe to that position. And a lot of that is for the re- or reasons of language like this. I think a lot of it is, in fact, talking about the destruction of the temple. But then you have um, things like uh, verse 31. He, God, will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Well, there's, that's been handled different ways. Some people say, oh, that's not going to happen all at once. That's a reference to the gospel going forth and gathering out God's elect. But it seems pretty strongly to suggest that this is like a judgment moment and that the elect are all over the world going to be delivered. And that certainly doesn't fit into um, understanding Matthew 24 as just about A.D. 70. But at the same time, you have things like Right in the context of that verse, which I just read, uh, you look down and you say, in verse 34, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. And as you read that, you can can think back, we've read in Matthew chapter 16, uh, the end of the chapter, Jesus tells his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Uh, I, I, I don't know. You know, it, there, 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 there is something significant about that generation. And I think um, there, it's, it's, it's really tough to to understand that as something other than a literal human generation. And yet, it seems to be talking about something which did not happen before that generation passed away, the, 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 the final coming of Jesus Christ. So, was there in some sense this figurative uh, coming of judgment that he was referring to that generation seeing? And that's what he's talking to when he's saying, you know, flee to the flee out of Judea. Because if he's, if he's, when we're talking about fleeing out of Judea, if that's talking about the final coming of Christ, that doesn't really make any sense. There's no fleeing from that. Or from the rapture, for that matter, even if you do see them as two, two distinct events. So there's, there's these overlaps of, of statements that I can't, with, with final confidence, sort out. Um, and I'll be kind of editorial here, what I'm inclined to believe is when we have that passage from verse 29 through verse 31, well, actually, you can even back up to, to verse 27 as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west. I'm inclined to believe that that is referring to, in some sense, God visiting judgment and coming in judgment on the Jewish nation but not just that event. It's also looking forward to the... That is significant, and that is a foreshadowing as he judges his old covenant people. It it typifies and looks forward to the greater event of his final judgment, which, which will be the final deliverance of his new covenant people, and also judgment on those who have rejected the Messiah, which will include some of those within the church. And this is why I put this up here. This is both an an encouragement and a warning for professing believers. Just because you say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. This is all about anticipating a judgment. Jews, a judgment on the the contemporary system of of temple worship and and of their understanding of the old covenant and even my believers, even you apostles that I'm talking to. There's, there's also, right framed within the same language as I expand the language a little bit, this reference to final judgment. And I'm telling you to be ready for this. You know, this generation, be ready to be under God's judgment, and have him discern your heart, are you really his or not? And if you're not of this generation, by the way, the the meaning of the passage extends to all of the generations of my people, and the warning is, be watchful, be ready, be fruitful, be doing what Christians do, be following your Savior, and and, uh, that's really the heart of Matthew 24 and 25. I think... There is a tendency because of the controversies to get into the the disputes about what particular phrases and verses mean, and this is where I kind of want to step back, and if you just step back from the controversies for a moment, and if we can all just say for the sake of uh, of discussion, and some of you may say, no, 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 I think you're wrong about this, but I really think a healthy way to approach the passage is to step back from theological constructs and say what's the big picture here? I'm not saying don't, don't go into detail but I'm saying before you go into detail what's the big picture for both chapters for this whole discourse and I think what you'll find is that the main thing, if you want to keep the main thing the main thing and keep the secondary things the secondary things, and by the way secondary doesn't mean unimportant but you want to keep the main thing the main thing And what Jesus is doing all the way through Matthew 24 and 25 is saying, be warned, be ready, be watchful. If you're really mine, this should be encouraging. If you're not really, truly following me, you better be thinking hard about what that means because there is a judgment coming we can argue all day about which judgment we're talking about how they overlap how they signify one another what's the what's the, the the sequence of events going to be but the big picture the main thing is this is it you know god is going to judge the earth and he's going to deliver his people And we can have a whole big argument about who he means by his people and what the schedule for that is, but he's going to deliver his people. And you better make sure you're one of those people. And then I'll propose to you, kind of looking forward to some of the things we'll read, that the way you know if you are one of his people is not whether you have simply made a profession of faith. And this is where I think the contemporary, particularly the contemporary Western Maybe I would even so, go so far as to say American church needs some serious instruction and some serious thought about the emphasis that we have placed on a profession. You know, I, I think Jesus, as he has developed what it means to be a citizen of his kingdom, has repeatedly and elaborately um, re-emphasized that Being a follower and a truster of the true Messiah, being a citizen of his kingdom, is something considerably beyond having made a profession that, yes, I agree with certain truths. Even if the truths are really true, and even if they are vital and essential, I think it is absolutely essential that you affirm that Jesus is God. I think it is absolutely essential that you affirm that he died on the cross as as a substitute for sins, and that he rose again in victory over death. Those things are essential. What I disagree with, in terms of some of the historical handling of that, is that if you get that right, you're in. I I think Jesus is repeatedly, throughout the whole book, arguing that yes, you have to get that right, but if you get that right, this business of divinity and substitution and resurrection, if you get that right, it will yield a life of trust in the Savior. And if it doesn't, I don't care how correct you profess to be about the facts, there's something in in you that isn't really trusting Christ. If it hasn't yielded this life that displays trust in Christ. Now, there are people who come to Christ in moments where there is no further, there's not much life ahead of them. They, they have a crisis and they die in the next moments or they're incapacitated in the next moment, moments. I'm not saying that, you know, there, in order to be a Christian, there has to be a, a track record of some kind. And I'm certainly not saying that it has anything to do with earning God's. Uh, approval, but I am saying that the normative thing for a normal life is that if you trust Christ you're going to look like and act like and live like somebody who trusts Christ and and I think the big picture on both of these chapters is take warning and if you're really one, one who's following him take encouragement but I'm warning you repeatedly repeatedly, do not assume just because you're standing here talking to me about spiritual things, that, that's it. You've, you've got the doctrines right. Walk trustingly in the, in the faith that, that I am doing my work, and I have done work to, to, for, to offer you forgiveness, to bring you to myself, and, you, and live like that, and live in a way that, that displays that you are counting on and living for the return of your king. Um, so that's, there's my big picture, sort of, step back at the big picture. Now, I'll just pause for a second, if you have any comments or criticisms of what I've said about Matthew 24, but then I want to start from that big understanding about what the main thing is, we'll kind of launch into the text of, of Matthew 25 and start getting into the details of that. Questions, comments, thoughts, Criticisms? All right then, I'm either crystal clear or lost you, because I'm too wordy, or maybe a little of both. Let's let's come to the text of Matthew 25 and and read this first um, illustration that that Jesus gives um, in the context that this is all designed to warn and encourage, warn those who do not follow Christ, encourage those who are followers of Christ. Um, and remember, this is um, in the context, the last part of Matthew 24. Uh, there's an evil servant saying, my, my master is delaying his coming in verse 48. And if you'll forgive my paraphrasing, I'll do what I darn well please. He's not going to be here for a while. Um, and, and Jesus says, That is not just unhealthy or a bad thing to do, it is deadly. I think, you know, if you just try to put yourself in the moment and you're talking to Jesus and he doesn't just say, well, that, that might be someone whose profession of faith isn't valid and there's going to be judgment. No, he's saying, he's using language like this, verse 51. Um, when the master comes when he's, and he's not being looked for in verse 51, he will cut him in two. He's going to hack him in half and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's awful, awful you know, awful judgment that is spoken of here. And Jesus saying, yeah, Jesus is gentle and lowly, and the kindest thing he can do is tell people, you don't know what you're messing with here if you think that the absence, the personal absence of the king is something that you should use as license to do whatever you want or live in whatever way you th- think profits you, It is. there are awful consequences of that. Just awful. So that's the context in which we uh, approach his next illustration in Matthew 25. Um, let's just read it. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept, and at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore. Watch, therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And then he picks up another illustration after that. We're running, uh, we're not out of time, but we're running short, so I won't be very detailed on this, but just kinda construct the picture. Uh, Ten virgins, and we probably need to talk about wedding customs a little bit in that day. I'll I'll save that for next week. Um, But ten virgins are there to honor the bridegroom, and his coming is delayed. I think that's simply a comment on what it seems like to us. Well, Jesus said he's coming. Where is he? Scripture talks about that in other places. You know, just don't think because something hasn't happened yet that it's not going to happen. He's coming. But his coming seems delayed. And they are wise and foolish. And there's oil that they need to be prepared to have their lamps lit, which is, you know an appropriate celebratory preparation for the celebration of the wedding. Uh, you need the oil. And I don't think it's saying that the foolish ones have no oil because they all light their lamps. When it says they trim their lamps, um, that's, you know, sort of uh, the language for lighting it, trimming it, that you get the, get the flame right. And then they also say um, to the to the wise the foolish say to the wise ones, um, our lamps are going out. well, it seems that they had oil to get started, but they didn't bring um, the excess the, the you know what the, what seemed beyond the need, if you will you know, you know okay, I got a lamp, I got some oil, I can light the lamp, I'm good. well, the wise ones are saying. This lamp may have to stay lit longer than I might guess. So I'm going to be wise about this. And I'm going to make sure I have an ample supply of oil. And the foolish ones are saying, "Eh, i got some oil oil in the lamp. It's OK. I'm I'm good. And so we're going to have to address, what's signified here? What's, What's going on? Because it's not some have oil and some don't. It's some have ample oil, and some have an insufficient supply of oil. And then the culmination of the story is the ones who run out have to run and get a supply, but it's too late. It's too late. The door is shut um, and there is no entrance. And the response of the bridegroom isn't just you're late, it's, and this figures, I think this figures prominently into the understanding of the story story. It's not you were mine, but you missed a chance. It's, I never knew you. Oh, so you have these five foolish virgins who thought they were in good standing with the bridegroom. They're part of the wedding party, so to speak. And yet they find, not only were they insufficiently prepared, but the bridegroom never had this intimate knowledge of them That is, that marks the wise ones that marks the ones that he invites into the wedding and shuts the door behind them. So, okay, it's what's being warned here? It has to do uh, both with preparation, but how preparation is the mark of what really is the case in the relation to the bridegroom. So... We'll elaborate on that another time. Uh, Final comments, questions, 30 seconds? If not, we'll pick that up next week. Thank you all.